Welcome everybody to Socratica Reads. My name is Kimberly Hatch Harrison and I'm the co-founder of Socratica. We make beautiful videos about STEM topics and a lot of our work is infused with an appreciation of the history of science. Our videos are all non-fiction, but we also enjoy reading historical fiction, especially when it involves scientific discoveries. So there's this meme going around about how do you know when you're reading fantasy or science fiction. Here's an example. In fantasy, you buy things with coin, while in science fiction, it's credits. But I've got to tell you, I'm not sure that you can say if this book is one or the other. When I was reading this book, Anatomy, I was struck by what a genre-bending, genre-blending experience it was. It's set in Edinburgh in the early 19th century and centers around a school for surgery. So there's a dark academia feel. There's some spooky resurrection experiments going on like Frankenstein. And there's a little bit of romance with some kiss kiss in a graveyard. And there's a plague, timely and some social questions about class and women being denied the opportunity for education. There's a lot going on, and it's also just really fun and perfect for the beginning of the Halloween season. I had a really hard time picking my favorite part for this podcast, because the whole book hangs together so beautifully. So, here goes with a little bit that makes me simultaneously disgusted and intrigued, which is kind of the perfect way to feel about this era of science and medicine. Most of the time, it felt to Hazel as if she lived at Hawthornden by herself. Percy was usually outside playing or at lessons. Her mother, still dressed in mourning, rarely left her bedroom gliding along between the walls like a ghost of death in black. Sometimes it was lonely, but usually Hazel felt grateful for the solitude, especially when she wanted to experiment. The dead frog was small and muddy brown. Its thin limbs, which had flopped in her palms like a loose doll when she plucked it from the footpath, were now stiff and unpleasantly tacky, but the frog was dead, and there was a storm in the air. It was perfect. Every piece was in place. From behind a small rock on the balcony, Hazel pulled out the fireplace poker and the kitchen fork she had squirreled away weeks ago, waiting for this exact situation to present itself. Bernard had been infuriatingly vague about the type of metal the magician scientist in Switzerland had used. Was it brass? Just tell me, Bernard, what color was it? I told you, I don't remember. And so, Hazel had decided to make do with the metal objects that seemed easy enough to pluck from the household without anyone noticing. The fireplace poker was from her father's study, and even the servants didn't bother going in that room anymore in the months since her father and his regiment had been posted on St. Helena. A distant groan of thunder echoed through the valley below. It was time. She would breach the world between life and death, using electricity to reanimate flesh, what were miracles but science that man didn't yet understand? And didn't that make it all the more miraculous that the secrets of the universe were out there, codes one might decipher if smart enough, tenacious enough? Hazel delicately set the poker down on one side of the frog, and then, with an air of solemn reverence, 
she slowly lowered the kitchen fork down to the other side. Nothing happened. She moved the fork and the poker closer to the frog, and then, impatiently, set them touching the frog's skin. Was she supposed to... No, no, Bernard would have mentioned if the convict's head had been impaled on a spike. When he came back from his grand tour, she had been breathless with questions about the demonstration he mentioned only in passing in his letter from Switzerland, a demonstration held by the son of the great scientist Galvini. Using electricity, the second Galvini had made frog legs dance and the severed head of a convict blink as if it were alive once again. It was frightening, really, Bernard had said, bringing a cup of his tea to his lips and beckoning for the servant to bring another ginger biscuit. But marvelous, though, in its own strange way, don't you think? Hazel did. Though Bernard had refused to talk about it any further, why must you be morbid, cousin? Hazel found she could conjure up the details of the scene in her mind as easily as if she had been there herself. The man in a French-style jacket, standing on stage in a tiny wood-lined theater, the red velvet curtains behind him heavy with dust. Hazel could see the string of frogs' legs jerking up and down, dancing like can-can girls, before Galvini whipped the cloth off the main attraction, the head of a man who had been hanged. In Hazel's imagination, his neck was cut low enough to show the purplish bruises where the rope had cut in. We men fear death, Hazel could imagine Galvini saying in a thick Italian accent. Death, gruesome and terrible, inevitable and senseless. We dance toward her as we might a beautiful woman. Italians love to talk about beautiful women. And death waltzes back towards us, beckoning, always beckoning. Once the veil is pierced, we never return. But it is a new century, my friends. Here, Hazel imagined him holding a metal rod aloft, like Hamlet with a skull, then raising his second rod and letting the lightning dance back and forth between them as the audience cooed. And mankind will conquer the laws of nature. The audience gasped as the stage lights crackled with light and gray gunpowder smoke popped for dramatic effect and the convict's head came alive. Bernard described it in a letter that Hazel had read so many times she had memorized every line, the way the convict's head had jerked when the rods were lowered to its temples, how its eyelids had scrolled open. For a moment, it might have been conscious again, blinking at the scene in front of it, the crowds of men and their wives in their best gloves and hats, and actually seeing them. Bernard hadn't mentioned the head's mouth opening, but Hazel found herself imagining a black tongue lolling, as if the head were bored of being trotted out for yet another performance, yet another matinee for yet another crowd. When the performance was finished, Galvini would have bowed to incredulous applause, and then all the gentlemen would return to their chateaus and villas to amuse their hosts with their description of the evening over port wine. It was like sorcery, Bernard had written although I'd never imagine a sorcerer to be wearing such ill-fitting trousers. Bernard had also mentioned in a letter that he purchased a hunting cape for 400 francs and that he had seen Prince Friedrich von Hohenzollern wearing the same one. But here she was, electricity heavy in the sky, metal on either side of the frog, and unlike Galvini's subjects, Hazel's remained insipidly, maddeningly, unmistakably inert. Hazel glanced behind her. Her bedroom was empty. 
Her maid Iona always finished tidying before breakfast was over. Hazel could hear the tinkling notes of the pianoforte trilling from the open window in the music room, where Percy was having a lesson. Mrs. Herberts was preparing lunch to take up to Hazel's mother, in her bedroom, as usual. She'd eat at her desk opposite a looking-glass draped in gauzy black cloth. Hazel held her breath and lifted the fire poker once more. There was one thing she hadn't tried yet, but Hazel was suddenly dizzy, her mind feeling light, as if it were being pulled to the top of her skull by a string. Her fingers shook. Before she let her body stop itself, she plunged the poker through the frog's back and out through its stomach. The flesh was disconcertingly easy to pierce, the poker slipping through the brown skin easily to emerge wet, glistening in an indeterminate viscous. I'm sorry, Hazel said aloud, and then immediately felt foolish. It was just a frog. It was just a dead frog. If she was going to become a surgeon, she would need to get acclimated to this sort of thing sooner or later. As if to prove her own fortitude to herself, she wriggled the poker through the frog a little harder. There, she murmured, serves you right. Serves who right? It was Percy, standing behind her, his eyes sleepy and hair matted, wearing only one stocking. In her excitement, she hadn't noticed the pianoforte stop. Though Percy was seven years old, their mother still had him dressed like a boy half that age, in a cotton shirt lined with blue piping and open at the collar. Lady Sinnet doted on him incessantly, as if he were a priceless and incredibly fragile piece of crystal. He was spoiled and selfish, but Hazel couldn't find it in herself to be annoyed with him, because the truth was, she felt sorry for him. Hazel enjoyed a rare freedom from their mother smothering him with all her attention, while Percy was hardly allowed to leave the house, lest he, heaven forbid, scrape his knee on the garden path. It's nothing, Hazel said, turning and hiding the frog behind her skirts. Run along now. Shouldn't you be at your lesson? Master Polia let me go early for being such a good boy, he said, grinning and showing off a row of small, sharp teeth. Hazel spotted one missing on the top. Percy rocked back and forth on his feet. Play with me. Mummy says you have to do whatever I say. Does she now? The sky was beginning to clear, a sliver of blue visible on the far horizon. If this was going to work, it needed to be soon. It needed to be while electricity was still in the air. Why don't you ask Mummy to play with you then? Mummy is boring, Percy sang, hopping on one foot and then the other. He shook his blonde curls from his eyes. If I go into Mummy's room, she'll pinch my cheeks and make me recite my Latin. Hazel wondered if their brother George had been like this as a child, if he had been whiny and so demanding of attention, requiring a witness to applaud and kiss him on the cheek for every horse ride and lesson completed. It seemed impossible. Besides, their mother hadn't been so fearful or suffocating back then. George had been quiet and introspective. His smiles felt like secrets shared from across the room every time. At the age of seven, Percy already knew how to wield his smiles as weapons. Did Percy even remember George? He had been so young when their brother died. Percy sighed. Fine, we can play pirates, Percy said, as if he were making a concession, as if Hazel herself had barged into his room and begged him to play pirates, and only now, in his benevolence, did Percy agree. Hazel rolled her eyes. Percy thrust his lower lip out in an exaggerated frown. If you don't say yes, I'll scream and get mummy and she'll be cross with you. Another cloud shifted. A patch of light crept up the bottom of Hazel's dress. 
the warmth of it amplified through her layers of skirts. Why don't you go down to the kitchens and ask Cook what she's making for tea? I bet if you ask now, she'll make you your favorite lemon cakes. Percy considered. He frowned at Hazel and whatever she was hiding behind her skirt, but after a moment's thought, he turned and scampered away, no doubt down the narrow stairs to torment Cook and Mrs. Herbert's. Hazel had bet right. There was no competition between playing with her and eating lemon cakes. There wasn't much time left, but before she continued, Hazel needed to lock her door. There could be no more intruders. She walked inside and twisted the heavy key in its lock until she heard the satisfying thud, and then she dashed back to the balcony, where a few drops of water had fallen in the few seconds she was gone, dotting the mossy stone almost black. If this was going to happen, it would be now. She lifted the kitchen fork again and waved it over each of the frog's limbs like a shaman. Nothing. Perhaps the demonstration Bernard had seen was a trick. Maybe there was never a corpse at all, but a man hiding under the table, his neck poking out through a hole in the wood with theater makeup deadening his skin until it was flat and colorless. What a laugh the actor, the liar, and the Galvini boy had probably had after the show, counting the paper money they took in, getting drunk with their fellow two-bit performers in grease makeup. And then the frog moved. It's still amazing to me how a good book can transport you to a different time and place and inside someone else's head. I hope you're getting that sense from this podcast, Socratica Reads. Thanks for listening.